Welcome to episode 167 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And this is the podcast that puts brothers in the hood. <laughs> hey, brother. Hey, brother. I'm pretty sure that's mostly what people think yeah. when they hear podcasts. Yeah, the secret is we're talking about hooded sweatshirts, though, because <laughs> we're both very white, and we live in <laughs> suburban areas. That is factually well, I correct. I live in a, in a rural area, which is even less diverse. And less suburban. It's true, less suburban. Yeah, that's factually correct. So in case you can't tell, Reformed Brotherhood listeners, we are in the same room, which is always a little... Interesting. We're doing the traditional sit next to each other on the same couch like uh, awkward prom dates arrangement because that's how we have to record. But uh, we're excited. It's it's midwinter no reason time, which is my favorite time of year to record podcasts. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was still stuck on the prom. The prom metaphor. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cheek to cheek. Is that right? what you think of? Or- <laughs> Isn't there like an old song about like dancing uh, cheek to cheek? Yeah, Lady in Red? Is yeah, that what you're talking this about? This just got really awkward. It did. Listen, this podcast, it, this time of year is always the most awkward of the year. And I look yeah. forward to it. It's hard because you would think it'd be easier to podcast together when you're in the same room. But actually, if you're used to podcasting over Skype, like we usually do, it actually right. can be a little bit difficult. You know, some of the greatest compliments that we received are people thinking that we do get together every week yeah. in person to podcast. It's true. So it's funny that when we're in the same room, <laughs> we're terrible. it's more like, where's my personal it's space? It's really bad. Yeah, like get away from me. And actually, in keeping with that theme, we've decided to go with joint affirmations and denials. Yeah. So by the time we're done, I'm going to be like, get away from me. Get away from my affirmation. I guess I'll start with my affirmation. Please. So I'm affirming, even though I make the jokes about no, uh, no reason midwinter, I'm affirming Christmas time. And I don't mean that in necessarily the sense of the religious celebration of it. I mean, we've talked about how I like Christmas hymns, but I don't like sappy Christmas songs. Right. But, you know, you and I uh, went to a local production called the Christmas Revels, which is uh, not just a local thing. It's actually a national event that different production companies put on these Christmas revelry plays. And, um, you know, it's funny because in the middle, and I think this is part of the nationwide thing, in the middle they do this song called The Lord of the Dance. And the Lord of the Dance in the song is Jesus. And he's, right. he's basically going through the gospel story. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's this refrain that the whole crowd joins in on. And they sing, dance then wherever you may be. I am the Lord of the Dance, said he. And I'll lead you home wherever you may go. I don't remember the rest of the words, but either way, I'll have to look it up. But either way, like the song is clearly, you know, the character of the song is Jesus. He's talking about how he was born in a manger and then he danced for the scribes and the Pharisees. It's overtly Jesus. And then the entire crowd joins in and they don't even realize. And it's funny because I leaned over to you and I was like, surprise, you're worshiping Jesus. (laughs) And they they don't even realize it. But what I'm affirming is common grace, I guess, if you really boil it down, is that this time of year, there's this exceptional awareness and openness to mm-hmm. things of the faith that people might not even recognize is going on. Right. And even, you know, this, the Rebels is interesting because in one sense, it's very pagan production. Like it's, it's, there's this weird little play they do in the middle and it's about 
you know, uh, St. George and he dies and then comes back to life and it's supposed to symbolize like the dying of the year and the right. like the leaving of the light and then the coming back of the light. Um, they do this weird like antler dance thing that's about like the hunt. It's got all this like pagan symbolism and it's a, it's supposed to be a solstice celebration. Yes. But as hard as they seem to try to make it about the solstice, no matter what they do, they can't get away from singing traditional Christian Christmas hymns and songs. Right. So so on one level, it's almost a little frustrating to sit there because you're like these these people don't know what they're missing. But I know for a fact that there are people who have come out of that hungry for something and they don't know what. Yeah, you're right. It was a really interesting experience because it's like here's a lesson in people not being able to get away from the themes that are central to God's narrative, this idea of death and resurrection of being reborn. And so I was struck by the same thing. It's not even just the Christmas time theme. It's just the idea of the revelry, the sense of rejoicing in something was actually this rejoicing in this kind of supernatural yeah. willingness that takes place over all of humankind and that results in a joyous restoration that the things die light is brought back into the world and through that light there is a rebirth that results in new living so even though like they had the fates involved all right. these are still like you they're just borrowing christian themes because those are the themes that bring us joy not because those are the themes that are necessarily like particularly interesting or the most entertaining, but it's the things that we all long for. And because we long for them, we find that our hearts gravitate towards them and they become something special to us. So it really was interesting. Like in the Lord of the Dance part, like people actually get up and there's participation, like they dance in that. Yeah. And even that, there's almost like I, I was thinking back to Daniel, not Daniel, David. Maybe Daniel also yeah. got down with it. Yeah. But David rejoicing, dancing before the Lord, it had that same kind of vibe of just being happy in with the Lord of the dance. Yeah. So it was like a really special, interesting thing. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's funny because they also have all of these, um, part of, I think the appeal of this is it becomes a very community driven event. For sure. It's it's the community in terms of the people, most of the people who are in the production are not professional musicians. They're people from the community who usually have a fair amount of musical talent, but they're not professional musicians. But then throughout the course of the play, you know, I was explaining to you, like, you really have to go to the Revels more, like, a couple years in a row to sort of get an understanding of what's happening in this weird little play and the dances and the, like, symbolism. But there's several times where they have the crowd join in singing. And the there's several songs that are, they do every year. So there's the Lord of the Dance, there's Dona Nobis, mm-hmm. uh, which the, right. the, the Latin lyrics are, are just give us peace. It's like, right. you sing give us peace repeatedly in different choruses and then the last uh the last song is is part of a song called the sussex carol and it's god bless the master of this house god bless the mistress of his house god bless you know everyone and and it's you begin the play you the middle of the play is focused on jesus and then the the last part of the play is essentially a benediction right so like the whole thing really is structured like a worship service in a sense Mm -hmm. and you know it's interesting because i know i know we bag on christmas and like we have some covenanter um listeners who are like i can't believe you're talking about christmas and i'm with you right there like it's funny one someone on on the uh internet the other day posted that article about xmas and how we shouldn't be offended by the x and xmas because it's really it's really the chi it's just a shortened form of jesus name and i said well 
the part about Christmas that should offend us is the mass part. Right. right. But but even though all of that's true, there's still this awareness and openness this time of year that I think Christians would do well to take advantage of. Agreed. And I don't think even even just taking advantage of it in the form of praying for the people right. who are exposed to Christmas. You know, even at work it's funny because people try really hard to say happy holidays, but they almost like can't get it out. Like they forget and they say Merry Christmas. And that's an opportunity to stop and pray for that person to say, you know, this person has Jesus' names on their name on, on his lips. And they right. don't even realize why they're compelled to say it. And that's common grace, right? Mm-hmm. And and all common grace will eventually become a source of judgment for those who are far from God. Exactly. Every gift that God has given us temporally, we call it common grace because we don't really have a better way to talk about it. But eventually, all of those common graces will be used as evidence in, in a person's condemnation. So we should pause and pray that God would take that common grace and use it to call his elect to him in a redemptive sense as well. Yes. Yeah. What's interesting is that I think you and I talked about this, the particular area where this play took place is a fairly liberal area. Yeah, well, for and, sure. And this is one of, I would say, like the last bastions where you can come in and hear these words proclaimed publicly. Yeah. And there is a beauty in that. That Again, we're drawn to want to, at least at this time of year, speak those words, put them on our lips. And I was just thinking, anybody who sings like any of these old carols, they're so rooted in Trinitarian theology. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the, the Godhead in right. Jesus Christ. And it's not light. It's not the algae light. Right. So the fact that people are at least having their tongues tied, as it were, to the name of Jesus Christ gives us good reason and pause to speak evangelistically this time of year and to be perhaps a little bit more bold. And sometimes that can just be of asking, you know, do you know what you're singing? As right. much like Philip did, do you know what you're talking about when you're saying these things? Yeah. But there is just a beauty that it's almost like Christians get to walk in this time of year and hear words, even like while they're shopping, that should be a bomb to us. Like yeah. what a joy to go to Kohl's or Target yeah. and to hear these songs and to hear Jesus proclaimed in a way that's almost proud, like, yes, we're going to listen to Christmas music. Yeah. Yes, we're going to play it. And we're going to be joyful in it, even if we don't know why. That's at least a really good excuse to just enjoy it. Yeah. It's almost like a little bit of an oasis in the air. It is. Where you it's can strange. just sort of step back and actually, like, be a Christian outwardly without any sort of concern. I mean, like, you have to be right. concerned for all the saying. same stuff you normally are. And it's not as though we should ever hide our Christian faith. But it's the one time a year where you have a good, reasonable expectation that if you express your Christian faith outwardly, you're not going to get, like, mugged. Like, you're not going to get, like, spiritually assaulted or, like, you're not going to face the same kind of repercussions you may face other times a year. Right. Like, if you if you take a minute to like talk about the meaning of Christmas at a staff party, right? It's not an uncommon thing for people at staff parties to sort of that conversation to come up. Like, well, what's Christmas mean to you? What right. do you do with your family? It's a perfect opportunity to say, well, you know, we, we, we give each other gifts in order to recognize the gift of salvation that, uh, that Christ is. And, and that's what we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas, not some special, special holy day, but but it's just an an annual way for us to have a heightened focus on this particular element of the gospel story. We gather on Christmas Eve to sing songs about the light of the world. I mean, there's all this rich symbolism that, yes, there's a lot of unbiblical symbolism that happens. I almost said umbilical. That's not right. Unbiblical (laughs) symbolism that happens around this time of year. 
but there's also still this tremendous amount of biblical imagery yeah. that gets that gets brought into this celebration that we should capitalize on, right? It's it's our capital that we should use. I agree. We've said before you can't judge something by its abuse, and I think that also speaks to Christmas. And maybe what we're saying is like you just get built-in excuses as a Christian this time right. of year, and there's a little bit more latitude. If Linus can do it, yeah, and Charlie Brown, <laughs> then there's almost some expectation that somebody can speak to like what's the real meaning of Christmas. And I think you're right. Like, that's a a great deal of common grace. And I'm also of the persuasion, I don't know how you feel about this. I agree with you. Like, as Christians, the mass part, the the overtly Catholic portion should be the piece that we get offended by. Perhaps the commercialism as well. However, there is still good work for Christians to be done to reappropriate this. Right. We're not the people saying, like, this is the day Jesus was born. And we're not saying that. We're also acknowledging that this has been, in our culture, appropriated from pagan celebration. Yeah. Even with all that said... Why don't we take advantage of this time of the year where everybody, at least in some sense, is being pointed toward thinking about incarnation? Yeah. Why would we step away from that and say, well, because... It was. It's, it's also been appropriated in such a way from pagan celebration that we're just going to do away with it altogether. Yeah. I think that is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Just like we make the joke about, like, I celebrate Easter 52 times a year on the Lord's Day. <laughs> yeah. Like, in a certain of sense, course. we should be people that celebrate Christmas 50 time, course, 52 right. times a year, too. But just like it's okay in, you know, late spring to have a particular focus on the resurrection, it's also okay in midwinter to have a particular focus on the incarnation. Um, as as long as it's not becoming implicitly or explicitly obligatory. That's exactly. where it crosses the line. It's more for me like, hey, listen, all these people who normally don't think about it are being prone to think right. about it. We think about it all the time. So let's introduce it. Let's say to them, yeah, definitely you should think yeah. about this. We think about it all the time because it is the source of our life. He is the light of the world, but he's that same way on, J- on December 26th as he is on the 25th. Right. And so come be a part. Come dance with the Lord of the Dance. Yeah. And while you're thinking about it, we want to take advantage or not take advantage, but this is like the entry point. Yeah. And you're giving a a massive entry point into people's lives in a way that, you know, on like June 6th, they're not thinking this way. So why would we not take advantage of what the God has given us in our own culture to speak of him prominently? Yeah. So now that we've had our shared affirmation, why don't you hit us with (laughs) our shared denial? Yeah. So we have a shared denial. That's really like, again, this is all theme today. Yeah. It is. All We're on theme. point. We're on brand today. Yeah, listen, we can't stop, won't stop. So apparently, and I only just learned this, and it sounds like you had also just learned of this. There, in speaking of the incarnation, uh, we're denying against an upcoming video game release that's titled I Am Jesus Christ, <laughs> which allows players to take the role of Jesus and reenact stories from the New Testament. So the game is designed by a company called Playway, and it's going to be available, if not now, very soon on the online gaming platform Steam. I don't even know. It's going to be on Steam? It's going to be on Steam. Jesse doesn't even know what that is, but that's actually a really big that's, deal. Well, it is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, no, very, thank you for <laughs> preemptively. I was just saying, like, yeah. Preemptively calling me out on that. Yeah, that's true. I probably don't have a good appreciation for that. So uh, here's, here's like a little quote from, I guess, the developers. Here's what they say. Become Jesus Christ, the famous man on earth, in this highly realistic simulation game. Pray like him. For getting superpower, perform famous miracles like him from Bible, like casting demons, healing and feeding people, resurrection, and more in I Am Jesus Christ. 
Do we need to say anything else about this, or is this the house speak for itself? I mean, you can file this in the if you don't laugh, you'll cry <laughs> section of the podcast. Oh. I mean, you know, we, we we don't usually pregame our show too much, but we talked a little bit about this. And, and it really, this kind of thing boils down. In this case, it seems like somebody who is really trying to do something right. that is reverent. Like, they're not making fun of Jesus. Like, this comes on the tails of this, like the same time of year as like this gay Jesus like Netflix film that's out and everybody's freaking out about rightfully so they're not this isn't that like they're not trying to make fun of it it reminds me I don't know if you played this did you have a Game Boy when you were yeah. that age they had this game called uh, the what was it called the Armor of Faith I don't remember that one. I remember another one for like original Nintendo yeah, that was yeah, like yeah. Bible Adventures or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there was this game called Armor of Faith, and I never got past the like the first thing you get is called the Fruit of the Spirit. And <laughs> what it is is you throw apples at people, and when you hit a bad guy, they fall down to their knees and pray and become totally a biblical. Accurate. Yeah, that's exactly how I do evangelism too. But like it's in that <laughs> same vein. It's like a, a, a well meaning developer, I, th- I think. I mean, I can't see a person's heart, yeah, but th- right, there's nothing right. about this that seems like it's mocking. Trying to connect the next generation to the biblical story and to Jesus in a way that's going to reach them. And like it's it's well-meaning, but it's so misguided. Yes, because what that's it, a good way to say it. What it boils down to, uh, second commandment violations aside, although it's really related to this. Of course. You should go back, listener, and listen to our second commandment uh, episode because it's really tied to this is there's this understanding that like the Bible is not enough. Like the, the scriptures, the written word of God is not sufficient, right? But there's there's God-ordained ways for us to explain the scriptures. So all those people who are like, well, you're not against preaching. Like right. there's, there's a biblical command for us to explain and teach the scriptures and to preach. But all of these, you know, whether it's Christian art, whether it's set storybook Bibles with second commandment violations with pictures of Jesus or pictures of God in it. Maybe this is a little controversial, but storybook Bibles... Uh, like on their own, even without pictures of Jesus, all of these things are basically a, a way of saying that the word of God is not sufficient. The, right. the written word of God and the word of God preached is not sufficient to connect with and teach people. And really, you know, Westminster Confession, uh, one, two-ish, three-ish, not two, that's just the list. Uh, chapter three, sorry, section three of chapter one. The word of God is self-attesting right. because of the Holy Spirit's act of commun- convincing us that it is the word of God. And unless the Holy Spirit does that, no one will ever be connected to the scripture. Right. No matter what, whether we make a video game, whether we do a Christmas pageant, right. whether we um, throw apples at people that have scripture verses on it. I mean, I remember one time we went to the, I grew up in Minneapolis. Testaments. We went to the Mall of America and we did this event. I'm doing air quotes. You guys can't see, but this evangelism uh, activity where we each went to the ATM and we got $20 out and we went up to the high level of the Mall of America and they have all these like walkways that go across the thing and we wrote verses on them with the phone number to our church and we dropped the $20 bill. <laughs> and this was our evangelism <laughs> exercise. And the, okay. the premise was like, well, if we give them money with verses on it, yeah. they're going to call our church and become Christians. Right. There was 50 kids that dropped $20. Air That's a logic. lot of money. We had zero phone calls back. Yeah. So I guarantee you all 20 of those dollars ended up being spent at the mall that day. Right. But we had zero phone calls. So like all of the gimmicks and the, the tricks we use. Now, content aside, there's nothing wrong with using art in a way that attempts to engage people for the gospel. Of course. 
But if we ever get to the point where we implicitly or explicitly think that we have to have that in order to accomplish the purposes of God, we've now functionally denied Sola Scriptura. Right. I agree. And of course, what makes this really unique, in addition to all those things, what bothers me is it's a first-player role-playing game. Oh, yeah. You must use Jesus. Yeah. And that is just fraught with, even if you're going to use that in a way that's reverent, it's just fraught with all kinds oh, of yeah. problems. Yeah, I mean, even the way they describe it. Yeah, the superpower thing, which right. we've talked about before. But you can see, like, that's where people tend to go. Let's make, and it's supposed to be, of course, at the end of the day, some kind of form of entertainment. Right. So it's turning this this spiritualism into some kind of way where you, especially like I don't get the part like can you pray hard enough like to earn the superpower yeah. that you need from God, even if we can say well this is harmless because it's just good clean fun which I think is what they intended with it, it's so damaging with respect to the kind of theology that it's impounding into the person who's playing and primarily it's going to be children playing this very right. thing. Yeah, pretty much unsupervised by their parents. Right. So it's it's just a strange really strange thing but I like what you said because when we talk about these things I think sometimes people just think like we're old men with like shaking our fists like get off our lawn and really what we're saying here is these things are really damaging we're seeing the outflows of poor theology yeah poor good theology doesn't make this game it just doesn't right and so we need to think about the stuff that we consume even when it's like good you know kind of Christian clean fun yeah so it it just seems so wild to me it's right it's kind of thing you should just laugh at and not by. Yeah, I mean, there's a um, there's an element of it almost being like a like a cheater shortcut of what they're trying to do too. Is is it certainly possible? You know, you can do this in movies, you can do this in writing and like fiction stories. C.S. Lewis comes to mind. Although there's issues with C.S. Lewis theologically, and then the whole pursuit of I mean. Aslan himself, in the way that you have to describe him in the books, is already, for some people, on the verge of Second Commandment right. violation. But that aside, there's a way to do art well that incorporates gospel themes or the yes. gospel itself yes. in a way that is appealing and winsome and, and serves to bring attention to the gospel and draw people to the scriptures to find out more. This is not that. Like this is a this is a cheater shortcut of that. Right. This is the equivalent of the Passion of the Christ versus like a movie with gospel themes that really draws you to the scriptures. Right. It's it's like um it's just it's cheating. Like I can't think of another way to say no, it. Like I think it's that's just saying it. instead of being um artistic and careful and strategic and using skill right. to draw people's attention to something, it's like they just throw it right in your face. It's like it's like if I was going to say I would really love a great cheeseburger. I was just thinking this. I, I guess I'm hungry. It must be lunchtime. And you're like, all right. And you came back from, from McDonald's. Like right. there's a time and place for McDonald's, of right? Course. But when I say I really want a great cheeseburger, that's not McDonald's. And this is kind of the same thing. Is like if this developer wanted to do something that glorifies God and draws gospel themes and draws attention to the scriptures, that's certainly a possible and worthwhile endeavor, but this is, this is just not that. And I, like I said, I don't want to impugn this person's motives. I have no idea what their motives are. Maybe they, maybe they're not Christians and they just think this will sell, which somebody needs a better like PR department <laughs> if they think this is going to sell. Um, don't look it up because you're going to find all sorts of second commandment violations and stuff. Right. I mean, you can probably try to find a text only article, but even that, like there's not more to the story than what we're giving you, but it, it's, it's just not, 
it's just not there. No matter what the motives are like this, you're right. Good theology does not make a video game like this. And this is good because it actually does legitimately for once transition us into what we wanted to talk it about does. today. But we've used this metaphor a lot of times, I think, of the calorie intake. And you're yeah. right. If you, let's say you want to eat healthy, you need a certain number of calories. You can get all the calories from Oreos or you can eat well-balanced meals. And I think this is predominantly why when we look to the scriptures, for instance, we find no physical descriptions of Jesus, of course. We find, of course, that he matured. He actually grew. Right. He got bigger. But beyond that, and I think the reason why is because any description, and God is so wise in this, any description that he would have given us would fall flat of the reality. And this is not to take away from the fact that the disciples did actually see him. Right. They did live with him, and that was appropriate for them because they were seeing Jesus in the flesh. But for us to be having a, a given a physical description, which God knew we would try then to represent in right. some kind of way, is to say that he understood we would always fall short. Every description would fall short. And so this is why the Bible speaks so predominantly, on the other hand, then, of seeing him by faith. Right. And so I think when we do these other things, what we're actually impeding is the process that God gave us to see him by faith, because this is the cheap substitute. This is the McDonald's hamburger. It is the sleeve of Oreos. Right. What we really need is the caloric content that comes through seeing him by faith, because faith is much harder. And that's something that's given by God. To exercise yeah. that faith, to see God and to see Jesus Christ reflected in that way is something more difficult. So what you said resonates with me. Good art is really thoughtful. It is really nuanced. It's more yeah. difficult to create that. Even think about this, like when we try to speak about these concepts, we try to speak in a way that's faithful and nuanced. And I don't always do that because we're speaking off the cuff, but it takes more mental effort and yeah. fortitude and a closer fidelity to the scriptures to speak that way. But that is good Christian discipline. Yeah. With the ones that we love, we want to speak accurately about them. We don't want to be kind of loose-tongued about how we describe our relationship with them or who they are as people. We don't want to be, you know, just impetuous with our language. Yeah. And so when we're tied to the scriptures by way of saying we're not going to speak loosely, we're not going to reflect Jesus in a way that is inappropriate, part of that is the way in which we actually depict him or yeah. the lack of depiction that we use for him. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into our specific topic here in a second, but it this time of year, it's so important for us to be charitable and gracious to other people. I mean, we should be charitable and gracious to everyone all the time. But for for Christians, this time of year is rife with pitfalls in this area. Sure. Right? Because whether it's um, whether it's the cheesy Christmas hymn that is maybe a little soft on theology, like it's real easy to like just get mad about. I mean, we we joked around a little bit about like some of the Christmas like docetic Christmas. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> Like docetic Christmas hymns, right? Right. Like Silent yes. Night. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Even if, even if we're talking about the silence of Mary as she gives birth, like that's bad theology. Like Mary right. had a normal Christian, a normal human pregnancy and a normal human birth. She didn't like teleport Jesus out of her womb in some sort of like super easy birth, <laughs> right? We have no reason to think that her birth was any easier or difficult than an average. Well, it couldn't have been, right? Birth. That couldn't right. talk about so, the pain of childbearing. But at the same time, it doesn't really benefit the church for us to like stand up in the Christmas Eve yeah. service and be like, that's docetism. How dare you sing that? Like, it's okay to sing that and recognize that it's not 100% accurate. Right. So there's a time for us to be super careful and meticulous with our speech. And I err on the side of that. Yeah, like if too. I'm going to make a decision and I'm not 100% sure which way to go, I'm going to err on being meticulous and cautious. But there's also a time to sort of, and this goes for, I think, worship music in general. Like yeah, for sure. To step back, recognize that art is not always 
photorealistic. Like that's that's not the point of art most of the time. The point of art is to communicate something true, even in ways that may, on a technical level, be false. Right. Right. We have a there's a we're sitting in my my family room and there's a painting that my wife has painted. Uh, that is not a photo. It's not photorealistic. It's not even actually of a real scene, but it's actually quite beautiful and it communicates something true about nature and about right. about art and beauty, even though it, it doesn't actually represent something real in real life. And I think sometimes our Christmas hymns, although we always have to be careful and our, our worship music in general, we always have to be careful not to say something false. We also have to recognize that you can say true things in ways that are not entirely Proper is the technical right. the technical term. Right. And we, I mean, that extends to how we always talk about God. We talk about proper and improper analogies, and almost everything we say about God is an improper analogy. Very right. little of yes. what we can say about God is a proper analogy. Right. So we should be cautious and gracious. But then again, like sometimes things go too far. This video game is too far. Too far. Christmas shoes is too far. <laughs> Way too far. Way too far. I don't care if last Christmas you gave me your heart and the very next day you threw it away. I don't care. The heart is deceptive yeah, and deceitful. It is. So throw it away. Give, yeah, why would you don't give that Don't give it gift? away and then throw it, throw it away if you have it. Yeah, throw it away. So in that vein, let's get to today the topic for today's episode. The clock is chiming to tell us to get going. The things you realize are making noise in the room you're recording in when you don't realize This is it. real life. So let's get to what we want to talk about on this episode. And speaking of describing God in ways that are appropriate, let's yeah. go to the scriptures then. Let me read a couple of verses. And we chose this passage because this is one that is often focused on this time of year, and it's absolutely glorious. Yeah. So let me read from the beginning of John. I want to read the first couple of verses and then 9 through 13. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yeah. All right, podcast's over. I, mean, <laughs> I will just keep reading. We'll just keep reading, John. That, that'll be the podcast. This is now become a live audio Bible podcast. I mean, what on one level, like, what can you say about a verse like that? Like, it's so rich. It's so beautiful. And... Uh, like rightfully so, like this is the Holy Spirit's words. But this passage is important because this time of year, like we talked a lot about how like this time of year people are open to it. In Christmas, at the Christmas revels, right? Jesus comes to his own people. Right. And most of those people did not receive him. Most of the people at the, the play that we went to, they sang about Jesus. They sang worship songs about Jesus. They clapped when actors on a stage gave glory to God, right? right? But then they walked out of there and they ignored every bit of it. Mm -hmm. So so we have to understand, like, how do we account for that? How do we account for the fact that Christ is the light of the world? And the scripture very clearly says gives light to everyone. Like, it's not ambiguous. Yes, right. But how do we also reconcile that with kind of our Calvinistic theology that 
the people still remain in the darkness. And that's the unique juxtaposition of this series of verses, which I love, because you hit it right on. Especially this time of year, in different traditions, you have, the, at the same time, the idea that Jesus is the light, and the darkness has now overcome that light. And then you set that over and apart against, but those that he came to, who his own, did not receive him. Right. So at the one time, there is this light that is purposeful and abundant and is there, prevalent for all to see. And at the same time, there's some kind of nuance here where there's a rejection of that light. Right. There's an acknowledgement of it in a sense. And yet a rejection at the same time that is absolutely profound. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we when we understand this, of course, you always have to take the scripture and put it in its context. So it's it's great that you read, you know, the, this whole passage or, or at least the most pertinent parts. And you see here in verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, one of the things that's important to remember is that the Bible wasn't written in English, and this is actually a passage, this verse here where it says the darkness has not overcome it, is actually a really difficult word to uh, define and to translate. And I don't know off the top of my head which translations use this, but another way to translate it is the darkness did not understand it. Right. And, And the idea is that the darkness did not grasp it. It did not lay hold to the light. And there's a combat, like a combat metaphor going on where the darkness cannot overcome the light, meaning the light overcame the darkness. But there's also that element of grasp that the darkness did not cling to or did not hold fast to the light. Right. And so there's there's the darkness that does not receive the light. And it can't receive the light because it can't understand it. And because it can't understand it, it also can't overcome it. Yes. But at the same time, now we have to account for why is it that some who legitimately are darkness, right? Christ came into a dark world. It's not like there were these pockets of, of regenerate people who, apart from God's grace, were were able to comprehend or understand Christ. He came into a world that was filled with darkness. All men, I mean, John is very clear with, with the idea of total depravity. Like, there's a portion where it says that um, Christ did not trust himself to them because he knew what was yes. in, in the heart of men. Right. And it's a universal statement. He's not talking about just those particular men. I mean, he, the, the text is highlighting a specific group of men, but then John comments on the fact that Christ knew what was in the heart of men universally. Right. So we have to account for, well, how is it that some do actually receive Jesus? Yes. That's the part that I really appreciate about this passage. And that's what drew me to it is there is this theme here that we can sense where there's a struggle between faith and unbelief. Right. And the question is, how do we understand that struggle? What is that war like? And so when we get to the latter verses, and John is basically saying, listen, here's the deal. The natural man cannot receive Christ. It's essentially as if there is historicity embedded in this. Of course, he's saying that when Jesus came in the flesh, his own people, the Jews themselves, for the most part, rejected him. But I read this also as well as this is the continuing saga. Right. That Jesus comes, his presence is known. He is the one who has come and stood in the place of mankind. And even still, now there is a rejection because the natural man cannot comprehend them. And even though that darkness can be overcome, but it's only by the installation of faith that is by God's hand. Yeah. It's not as if like what we need to do is just work ourselves up into a frenzy here and sometimes we'll be able to receive him if we, if we preach the right sermons, if we give the right words, if we have the right $20 bills with the right verses written yeah, on them. Make the right video game on stage. Yes. If we hit people with the right Bible bananas of fruit right. or whatever. <laughs> Which, by the way, I have this image now because we talked about Mario Kart of, like, the Bible banana. Yeah, there you go. And you throw it out. You Somebody out. needs to convert Mario Kart into uh, evangelism. And, game. like, that's, that's the fruit of the spirit of, like, patience because you can yeah. slow down. 
Yeah. And you're kind of like, you didn't win, but really you won in the end because yeah. now you're more patient and kind. But this idea, I think... It's clear to me that you haven't played Mario Kart for many years. <laughs> Doesn't it spin you out, the banana? Yeah, it slows you down. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you'd have to, you'd have yeah, to be patient. Definitely, yeah, I guess. Like, it would encourage you to be patient because, like, you'd get hit with the banana and say, oh, this is awful, but you know what God's teaching me is to slow yeah. down. I think really it encourages me to cuss. To Sabbath. <laughs> I, I try not to cuss, but Mario Kart sometimes brings out the worst in me. I can't wait to play this game with you. I yes, hope we do that. It's going to be amazing. We should we should really live record a part of we that. Should. We should. Maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> we should. Fruit so, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and not cussing. Something to come. Yeah. So I'm really... I've really been drawn into this verse of speaking about being born. And so it seems to me, how can we read this where it says being born not of the blood or of the will right. of man? Like right. that seems very direct to us yeah. in the context of this battle between faith and unbelief that we have to look at this, these verses and say, when the light comes into the world, we have such a clenched fist within us that we want to immediately, even though we see the light, deny it. Yeah. We don't want to believe it. And so, and then, as if that wasn't enough, John says, oh yeah, by the way, it comes by the will of God. Right. That's where, the, that's where this birth comes from. Yeah, and you know, just because I posed the question earlier, before we kind of get into a more of a, like a personal reflection mode, I've talked a lot about how sometimes when you run into a verse or a passage that is particularly like when it gets thrown at you by uh, a person from a different part of the Christian tradition who's trying to undercut your theology. So in this case... It's not uncommon for uh, Arminians or Roman Catholics or some kinds of Lutherans that don't really understand their own theology and are actually just Arminians um, to throw verse 9 at you um, and say, like, see, the light was enlightening all men. Right. All means all, right? right? But if you just read a little bit more of the scripture in context, it usually clears itself up. And, you know, on one level, theology is about... This this is the, the rule of faith, the analog of faith, right, is you take the verses that are clear and you understand what they're saying. And then the verses that are unclear, you interpret those in light of the clear verses, right? Right. It's not as simple right. as just like lining up which verses you think are clear and comparing who has more clear verses in their favor. But it's kind of that simple. Like on, on a grand scheme, it is. And so sometimes we, we come off. Um, not we like me and you, although me maybe more than you. Sometimes Christians, uh, Reformed Christians come off as a little arrogant because they look at a verse like this and they go, well, how else could you possibly read who were born not of blood nor of the will of man? Come on, Arminians. <laughs> but like on one level, that's that's the reality. Yeah, like, for sure. Like if you look at the scripture and you read it comprehensively and you look at the passages that are radically clear about how it is that a person comes from being an enemy of God to being a person who trusts in God and is now a friend of God. It's the will of God. Like God is the first actor in that equation. Right. So when we, we get it thrown at us, the true light, which gives light to everyone, all means all. Well, is it all means all in light of the fact that this is the will of God? Yes. Right. And then of course you have to get into systematic conversations about what it means that it's the will of God. But, but on the surface of this text, you know, when you get that verse that gets thrown at you by an Arminian or someone from a different part of the tradition who you just can't quite figure it out. You know, like I think of uh, the, the passage in First John where he says um, he died to forgive all people or right. all sins or however exactly it's phrased. Like if you just read a little bit more, just read a little bit more. That usually solves it. Right. But I, I do. I love this passage. And, you know, this 
John is such a brilliant writer. It, it's really clear to me when you read John in comparison to the other Gospels. Not not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were dumb people or anything like that. Did you just call out the other Gospel I, writers? I did, no. But, like, <laughs> they're doing something different, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're writing with a different purpose in mind. Yes. Whether we can retrieve that purpose, I guess, is a, a matter of debate. But... John is clearly being written at a point where the theology of the church has come to a further stage of development than Mark or Matthew. Right. Right. And this prologue demonstrates that because not only do we have a basically fully fleshed out Trinitarianism Christology, but we have a fully fleshed out doctrine of election and predestination. Yes. We have a doctrine of illumination with the light of the world. I mean, we've got almost all of the doctrines of systematic theology, all of the main loci of systematic theology mm-hmm. are embedded in John 1. Right. So if you're going to memorize a whole chapter of the Bible, John 1 is a really good yeah. one to do it's because it's, it's got everything there. But it's so clear to me because, you know, we talk a lot about justification. Uh, Reformed Christians tend to be really obsessed about penal substitution and double imputation. And these are super important categories. But we don't always spend as much time thinking about and talking about adoption Mm -hmm. in Christ as we should. Even though our confessions have a whole chapter on it, we don't always spend as much talking about that. And what I think is really profound about John's gospel and the, the, the prologue to John's gospel is that when he wants to give in this, this prologue form, right? The prologue of a book is designed to give you a summary and a thesis statement for the whole book, which John confirms in the end that you might believe that you might have life in his name, mm-hmm. right? It, it, it nicely closes this up. The name right. is the key here. Trusting in Christ and his name is the key he doesn't focus on justification. He doesn't focus on True. penal substitution. He focuses on being made a part of the family of God, being adopted and having the right, the legal right to be called the children of God. Yes. And then all that comes with that. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's why it's important in chapter one here to establish the fact that the word is the son of God. Right. Because if you don't know what the son of God is, if you don't have a fully un, a fully robust understanding of the Trinity, then adoption doesn't really make any sense. Right. It becomes this weird Mormon idea where like somehow we become deified. Mm-hmm. But in, in John here, that, that word, the right or the authority to become children of God is important because we're talking about a legal right and a legal status change of we were once enemies of God, and now we are not only just friends of God, but we're children of God. Right. And we've got all of the privileges and benefits that goes in. A really interesting exercise is if you take John chapter 1, <laughs> and you take Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, and you kind of like synthesize them together, they flow so nicely together. Because Paul starts out talking about, you know, uh, election in Christ before the foundation of the world, right. and then he flips over into being given the rights to a co-inheritance. And Paul and John are saying the exact same thing in, in, in very different ways, but they're saying the exact same thing. Yeah, you're right. When you get adoption, you're automatically getting justification and right. positional sanctification. And so what strikes me, having I talked about this with you, is that at Christmas time, we're often celebrating halfway, and right. you need the full scope. So to me, when I look at this, this passage, it's in two parts, and if you only get halfway, actually all you get is judgment. Right. So to celebrate just Jesus coming into the world and stopping there, even if you say he is Savior and he's Messiah and he's Manuel, which is all true, and that he's living in perfect obedience to God, dying on the cross, transferring our debt sin to himself, paying that, rising from the dead as our brother, the only way he becomes our brother, see that's just halfway there. If we stop right. there, 
The only way is if we are made adoptive sons by which or children by which God opens our hearts through faith right. to Him. Yeah, you need both. It's not just enough to say Jesus came. Like, is that a gift in a sense? But it's also condemnation, and right. it will result in future judgment if all we get to is just that Jesus came. Right. What we need is the second part, which is to all who believe, who have been given faith, not of the will of man, but of the will of God. That itself is just as great a gift. Might I say, like in a sense, almost a greater gift as Jesus coming in flesh. Yeah. Because if Jesus just came in the flesh, but God does not regenerate our hearts, all we've done is we're, we're sitting in condemnation. Yeah. We need that kind of regeneration. That's why we talk about it so much. That, yeah. that, that's why it's not just a matter of you know, saying the right words, coming to the altar, giving a matter of confession where we don't have the fruit of the Spirit that's grown into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need both of these things. And it's nice at the end of the day. Actually, it's an amazing blessing at the end of the day to rest in the fact that when you are adopted, it's not because you chose the parents and somehow manifested all of the paperwork and brought right. everything together. It's that someone else chose you. Right. And so therefore you rest in the fact that there's nothing then that I can do to earn that and there's nothing that I can do to lose that sense of adoption. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that is not at all to undercut penal substitution. Right. I mean, no. we did a whole atonement series on the different models of the atonement. And I think our conclusion, you can correct me if I'm speaking out of turn here, but I think our conclusion was mostly you can't really isolate any of the atonement theories from the others. If you don't have yeah, absolutely if you don't have all of the different atonement theories in some measure, then you have a weird, a weird non-biblical version of what, what Jesus did for us. Even things like moral exemplar theory we we still have to incorporate but at the same time you're exactly right that if all we have at christmas time if all that we celebrate at advent is the coming of jesus that's actually terrifying right For sure when 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 adam celebrated the first coming of god after the <laughs> fall right the right. first advent of god after the fall he hid himself right right and you got to think about the fact that like adam's naked he's hiding in a bush like that can't be comfortable right right but his his fear i mean i don't say that to be funny <laughs> but like his fear of god outweighed his fear of this new sensation of pain Sure. Right. His fear of God that in his recognition of his own sin and guilt and his lame attempts to cover himself with fig leaves. Right. His recognition of that is what you get if you don't have the gospel yes. added to the coming of Christ. Right. And so that's that's where I think we, we need to understand this passage, because here here's where the, the passage flips over. Right. There's there's all these different spots in the scripture where we see this law gospel preaching exemplified. Yeah. So people uh, people who want to sort of come at law gospel preaching like it's somehow not a biblical thing is when you think about the way you're talking about it. Right. The beginning of the word became, uh, there was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God, in him was light, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not grasped it. Right. That's not a, that's not a happy statement, right? It's no. not, on one level, there is an element, as I said, there's an element of the light overcoming the darkness that's sort of a combat motif, that it's good that the light didn't overcome the dark, or the light overcame the darkness, but that's not good when you're the darkness. Right. Right. And so the rest of this is talking about how we become part of the light, how we are enlightened by the sun in a salvific way, as opposed to this general enlightening that happens to all men. And here's where it is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And here it is 
full of grace and truth. Right. And then if you want to, if anyone ever wants to say, no, no, that's not law of gospel, the very next passage you, here. You just stole this from me. I was just going to so, say this. <laughs> but ah. verse, verse 17, right? For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Like John is literally contrasting the law and the gospel. How dare you, sir? How dare you, sir? That was going to be like my big reveal. But but like, I, I, got, I don't know. Like I didn't intend to go this way, but like I don't understand how people can look at the scriptures, right? Whether it's this section in John right. or whether it's Paul in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians. Well, yeah, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. Yeah. But in Ephesians, right? You were once children of wrath, following yep. the prince of the air, like all this terrible stuff, but God, rich in mercy. Like there's right. these spots where the text flips over, and usually there's actually a word that is contrasting it. Yes. Like there's a literal grammatical phrasing that there's shows a, a you linchpin. this is a huge contrast. Mm-hmm. And and people just miss it. And I think at Christmas time, that's what it is, is people mistake the law for the gospel in celebrating the coming of Jesus apart from what he's done and why he had to do it. Right. And this is not John saying, well, Moses was all about law. When Jesus came, he's just love. This idea of grace and truth is essentially an extension of the law saying, I mean, grace in the sense that here's like the divine unmerited favor and blessing of God, which you do not deserve because you have disobeyed the law. So it's almost as if he's bifurcating these saying, if Jesus comes and you do not receive him, Again, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, all you've got is what Moses wrote for you. Right. If you receive God by the will of God, then what happens is now you have that favor of God. Yeah. Now the law which you should have obeyed has been been obeyed on your behalf in perfect submission. And that is this beautiful truth. Yeah. So like, I love this idea, of course, that Jesus comes and he's like us. He's wrapped in flesh. He's, he's a baby just like us. Mary would have gone through all the birth pains because that was the curse and punishment that happened in the beginning of uh, in Genesis. And yet at the same time, I push against these ideas of like, well, let's just come and like, look at the cute little baby Jesus. Yeah. Like he is a baby. I'm sure he was super adorable because babies generally are adorable. But here also is the king of glory. Right. Here's the one the nations are going to bow down to. Here's the one that people should fear. And there's a sense at least in the New Testament, in the Gospels, when we see, you know, of course, the three wise men come, or the wise men rather, come to see him, that there is a sense they at least understand partly that yeah. idea. And we, we ought to, too, because there's something, we've talked about this before, I think, there's something dangerous about Jesus. Yeah. Even as a child, there's something dangerous about him. There is a combat, combating that happens here. It's both spiritual and physical, because then not long after this, of course, we're going to have Herod come and wipe out all these Now children. you stole my reveal. <laughs> I was going to go there. Ah. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I was just going to say, like, <laughs> on one level, Harry gets it. Like, he, he really gets it. Yeah. He, he understands that Jesus is going to be his undoing. Yeah. Like, he gets it that when the Messiah comes, his ability to live uh, however he wants and to retain his tiny, pathetic little power in this postage stamp-sized kingdom in the Middle East, that that's a done. It's yeah. all done. Right. There's no more King Herod in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, you're right. And he had a choice— you know, he's got the scriptures in front of him. He has a choice to go with the wise men, right? And it's there's there's this interesting sense of irony in that passage, right? Is that Herod tells he tells them exactly the right orthodox thing. Tell me where to find him. I'd love to go worship him. <laughs> right? Right. But then he doesn't. Right. right? The darkness did not understand the light and could not overcome exactly. the light. Exactly. So no matter what Herod did, he tried his best 
to hang on to his authority and his right. ability. And in, in the grand scheme of things, it was him trying to hang on to his own sin. Right. And not being able or willing to grasp onto Jesus as the, as the light of the world, as the Messiah. And the, the theological explanation for why that happened is both and that God did not will him to do that, right. but also that he had hardened his own heart against the right. truth of the gospel. Yes. So, so we have to understand, you know, again, there's these contrasts in scripture. John is not saying that the will of God somehow overrides right. or undoes the will of man. Right. Right. The, the, the reason Herod didn't obey and follow Jesus is because Herod was a sinful man who didn't want to obey and follow Jesus. Right. He wanted his, he wanted to retain his power more than he wanted to follow Jesus. But that's, that's part of the beauty of the gospel is that when Christ comes in and he wants to overcome the darkness in our hearts, there's, there's no fighting it. Yes. Right? That's what we mean when we say irresistible grace. Right. Not that we, not that we somehow are going to kick and scream and, but we can't resist it because it's that much stronger than us. It's irresistible because of what God does in making us not resist it. Yes. That's how it becomes yes. irresistible is that it's, it is itself the things that the thing that makes us no longer resist it. Yes. It's like, it's like the most compelling, convincing argument isn't something that you have to kick and scream against because it's convinced you. Yes. And, and of course this is a different thing, it's, but it's an infallible, ineffable convincing that overcomes us by making us no longer resistant to it. Right. So, so yes, it's the will of God, but the will of God functions by grace and truth overcoming our objections in many cases, right? That there's still a reason for apologetics. There's still a reason for us to go to that yes, Christmas play and right, be able to explain the story of the gospel to people. But at the end of the day, this is it's so freeing also to recognize that I am not responsible for being that compelling force. Because right. if someone does not believe, it's not because ultimately... I was a failure. Right. It, it may secondarily be because I didn't do what I needed to do, but that too was ordained by God. Yes. So this this passage, I think, is such a beautiful way of kind of unpacking those themes. And at Christmas time, like this is a perfect way to introduce someone to the gospel. Yes. Right. If you were, a, I, I don't normally think that this is a, a super effective way to do evangelism. I don't think street preaching is, is typically going to be the most effective thing you can do. I think one-on-one -on -one personal evangelism, not in the sense of like, I'm going to become best friends and they'll just just see I'm different and they'll just that I don't think that that's normally the way God does things he he operates by us verbally proclaiming the gospel right. but he does it in predominantly a one-on-one -on -one fashion right. exactly this is a perfect passage whether you're street preaching outside of a gospel play or outside of a, a Christmas pageant right if if I was the kind of person who would do this standing out on the green in Lebanon New Hampshire as people file out of the um out of the Christmas revels and saying do you want to know the Lord of the Dance? Do you want to know what that song's right. about? Do you want to know why you have a strange calling? Why, why that song stuck with you more than the random song about the factory workers did? Right. Why that is? Let me tell you, because you're darkness and Jesus is light and you can't overcome him if he wants if he right. wants you. Or whether you're doing that personally. This passage takes you all the way through that. Yeah, it's it's a perfect Christmas evangelism passage. And we don't even always think about this as a Christmas passage because it's right. not the traditional nativity, baby in a manger kind of passage that we look to. But this is the, the Christmas gospel in like distilled, rarefied theological form. Yes, I totally agree. So let me turn us now as we kind of move toward the close to poor metaphors for things that we've just spoken about. Okay. <laughs> so... 
I thought about this for a long time in terms of coming up with a metaphor for this idea of this irresistible grace. So let me throw one at you. In All right, sense. let's do it. So this is going to be broken because in this in metaphor, I'm going to use just physical health as an example. And we know that sin, of course, impacts our physical health. But setting that aside for a moment, think about the fact that for the most part, our normative position, our body wants to be well. God has created our bodies to fight disease for right. the most part. Now, if you get like bronchitis, if you get some kind of bacterial infection and you are sick, uh, as we start out in our own spiritual lives, what we need is a massive intervention at some point. Right. And if that intervention occurs, there's a sense where we, there's, there's an irresistible recovery that happens. So here's the wild thing. If you're sick and you have bacterial infection, you go to the doctor, he hooks you up, you have a sinus infection, let's say, he hooks you up with some good old antibiotics. The thing about antibiotics is most of them, the ones that are commonly prescribed, they don't actually kill the bacteria. They prevent it from multiplying. Right. And so what happens is that gives your immune system an opportunity then to move in and destroy it because right. now it has the upper hand on that. So here is the sense of like once there's a radical intervention, this regeneration in the physical composition of your body, so to speak, with respect to the introduction of this force, which is in this case the antibiotics, your body is wooed irresistibly into wanting to heal, move toward that healing. This is super broken. I regret that I started this actually now that I said this. But it's this idea, like you said, that normatively we resist God. So in other words, like to your point, it's not that like God is overriding the will because where we want to be is hard hearted toward God. But it's also almost like if you have like a delicious piece of cake, I'm scrapping the metaphor now. If you have a delicious piece of cake, <laughs> most people don't say like, oh, I hate that sugar. I, I just like it's overridden my will. Like all I wanted to do is eat healthy and that's destroyed right. me. They're wooed toward it. It's like it's delicious. I'd like yeah. to have a piece of cake. Yeah. So it's this idea that, yeah, God is not like taking us and just trampling us down. Like this is something beautiful about the way Jesus comes. He comes as the baby, king of glory, Lord of all. And yet what he does is in transforming us, he wins us. He wins yeah. us for himself. And here's yeah. that combative language, but it's, it's a winning where we're just like, why was I ever like that? This yeah. is where I want to be. God knew best. Yeah. And it's gracious because everybody has the hard, natural heart. So for, like we said for, for before, for him to save one is that grace and truth. Yeah. Even just yeah. one. I mean, maybe to try to rescue your metaphor a little bit. It's, it's more like, I think, like um, the heart wants to beat, right? That's what it's designed to do. For sure. And um, left uninjured or unimpeded, it will beat. Right. But then someone dies. Right. Right. And and their heart stops beating. And all that's required, I say all that required, like it's a simple thing. But if they get that heart beating again, if they do something, if there's some intervention that, that allows it to beat again, the heart is going to start beating again. Right. And the reason that this metaphor works is because this is the metaphor scripture uses. Right, right. Of course. When you have a heart of stone, which isn't necessarily trying to say like a physical heart of stone, right? It's talking about a dead heart. Right. A dead spiritual heart. Well, when, when God puts a new heart in it, that heart beats. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, I used to work in kidney transplant. And one of the things that's uh, interesting about uh, heart transplant, they don't hook the heart up to the nervous system. Right. In, in a normal heart, a normal person's heart is connected to the nervous system. And there's an electrical impulse that comes from your brain that helps regulate it. But in a transplanted heart, they don't do that. Right. It's all based on... Uh, enzymes and metabolism. And that's the interesting thing is when they put that new heart in that person, 
They don't need to tell it to be. It just does what it's designed to do. Right. And our, our spiritual regeneration is the same thing, is that in our, in our I say natural in kind of quotation marks, in our post-fall natural state, which is actually our unnatural state, right. our hearts don't work. And then God regenerates us and gives us that new heart. He doesn't have to continue to tell it to be. I mean, he 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 does providentially, he does, but, but he upholds it. But right. but at the same time, like the miracle is the new heart, and yes. then the new heart does what the new heart does, and that's where we talk about irresistible grace. Yes, that new heart in the transplant it irresistibly beats. So, in other words, to borrow some real language, because I like this, we were made for an unnatural state. Right. It, it should have been natural. It was in the beginning, but because of sin, it's become corrupted to such a degree that. Now, the state where we want to be in, which is complete oneness with God, relationship with him, is now our unnatural state. Right. If somebody could kick us out from the natural state and unnatural, we would, at the end of that, be like, yeah, yeah this exactly. is what I wanted all along. Yeah. It's just that we are stupid children that are hard-hearted and stiff-necked because yeah. of sin. And we need somebody to spiritually kick us in the face or throw the banana fruit, <laughs> the banana fruit, the Bible fruit at us. Yeah. spin us around. And then once that happens, we're, there's never going to be a point where I think anybody's going to be like, well, I want to go back to that nonsense. Right. Yeah. That would never happen. Yeah. So to me, there's no this sense of like, well, God is now is God's making robots. Right. And they're just obeying him because he's not only overridden your will, but he's overpowered you to such a degree. Uh, if that's what it is, why well, I say, God, overpower me every time. Because like a good parent that knows what their children needs when their children is young, and it's just stupid and foolish. I want that parental guidance. I need yeah. that. Yeah, you know, and, and then I think we can wrap up with this is, you know, the, the common Arminian trope of like, well, God's a gentleman, right? And, and it actually really frustrates me because they apply, they apply like grotesque language to the gospel when they talk about how God, God won't rape people. And right. they're talking about how God, God is a gentle lover who only, only moves forward when you consent. And yeah, when you posture it that way, that makes all the sense in the world, except that that's not at all what we're talking about when we're talking about salvation. You know, and, and if you throw back, you know, if I was on a bridge and I was going to commit suicide, I'm standing on the edge of a bridge over a right. large body of water and I'm about to jump in my saneness, looking back on it after I've been rescued, I don't want someone to, I want someone to overpower right. my will. Right. I want them to tackle me to the ground and I want them to hold me there until either they can take me somewhere safe or until they can convince me that I've gone insane and that I need to change. Right. And, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about irresistible grace. Is We're not talking about God doing something violent to our wills. Mm -hmm. But but even if he did, right, tackling someone to the ground is violent. Right. Cutting a tumor out of someone in a surgical operation is right. violent. It is. But at the end of the day, sometimes that's what's required. And that's the loving, kind, gracious thing to do. And so if you reframe it that way, like irresistible grace, I, you can you can overpower me all day long if it, if it means that I get to be with Jesus forever. Right. That's and, well said. And for, for an Arminian or a Roman Catholic or someone who denies that that monergism or even, even a Lutheran to a certain extent, although we'll get into that in a different episode sometime, I'm sure, even for them... In their really, if they're being really honest, I think they would agree with that. But they also have to realize that at the end of the day, what they're saying is my my autonomy is more important to me than being with Jesus. Right. And if it means that I don't make the right choice, then God values my autonomy more than He values my salvation. That's that's literally, and I, I, I'm sure any Armenian who hears that, oh, that's a straw man. But that's what they're saying, right? 
the autonomy of the believer is more important than their salvation because God won't violate their autonomy in order to ensure their salvation. That's that's the Arminian gospel. And to me, it just doesn't make any sense. And without putting too fine a point on it, I think that's what John is saying here. Mm-hmm. When he talks about these wills, I think it's exactly why yep. he uses that type of language. So would you say, in summary of this conversation, that this has been the definitive Christmas episode? At least the most definitive that we've ever done. I think so, yeah. We're very Christmassy on this. We, yeah, we uncharacteristically. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry we don't, Christmas. We don't usually say Merry Christmas. We, don't. We, we make a joke about mid, mid-season or mid-winter, no reason. But there is the reality that Jesus Christ became man. And right. we should and must celebrate that. So maybe we need to find a better way to say it so we don't say Mass. I don't know. I don't think that's necessary. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, I don't know. But... But this episode is, I don't know, only happen every eight years or something like that. <laughs> this episode is going to launch on Christmas Day. So Merry Christmas from the Reformed Brotherhood. Merry Christmas. Honor everyone. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> how do we, how do we, I mean, we've ruined our tagline yeah, I now. don't know. Did you see that I was ready to say it though? I know I was, you were. Yeah, I was taking it. It's like breath. Pavlov's dog. Yeah, All it right. just happens. Let's do it for real Sam. Okay. Honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Uh...